Hey, one more thing before you go. Childhood trauma, addictions, clinical depression, and narcissistic abuse. Is there opportunity for transforming trauma into soul evolution? In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with a woman who was ferociously challenged in her upbringing, but bravely moved forward in life as an adult who faced ingrained, outdated patriarchal programming. We all are familiar with it. Now she shares a unique perspective in viewing life challenges as occasions for transformation, and she's going to help you understand how to transform yourself. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. Through her book, Toxic Family, Transforming Childhood Trauma into Adult Freedom, my guest Susan Gold turns the standard paradigm on its head, courageously leading others through their own journey of abuse, addiction, and surviving narcissism, all while creating a distinctly empowering personal and professional life. Susan developed opportunities for soul evolution and created a conversation to clear toxicity in our family lines and free us from living in a painful and outdated matrix. Her mission is to help us see our challenges as opportunities for soul evolution and create a conversation to clear toxicity in our family lines and free us from living in a painful and outdated matrix. I said that twice. Welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here, Michael. It's a privilege to be with a fellow survivor. Well, thank you very much for what you've gone through and uh, come out the way you came out on top of what you've gone through, because we all both know that sometimes people don't always have the opportunity to do that. And uh, you have done it brilliantly because you, you've created an environment for others to do the same and walk the same path. So thank you for being here. It's profound to really have that realization, you know, that we are all really one and we're only a centimeter away from a very different trajectory, as you know, from all the work yeah. that you did before you became an acclaimed podcast host. You know, it is life can change in an instant. And, and sometimes we're put into situations that we weren't meant to be in to make that change. And, you know, I know that uh, coming from an abusive family, coming from a toxic environment doesn't always allow us the um the vision to be able to take those steps away from that um but you know i will get into all of that i, I really want to if you don't mind let, let's start about in the beginning where'd you grow up at? i grew up in a small home in central pennsylvania my father's a genius astrophysicist and my mother had five children in very short succession her chance at an advanced education never came so uh, she soothed through food. And back then, when you had a food addiction, the solution was diet pills, which were straight speed. And so I learned in my 20s, I was raised by a speed freak with a mental issue. And my father would uncork that whiskey bottle at 7.30 a.m. and hear glug, 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 glug. Like his face was always, almost always red. And he was inebriated most of the time. Um, but I didn't really understand that on a deeper level until my own issues surfaced in my twenties. That's, you know, it, it is uh, middle child. You said five, five kids, you're in the middle. Um, you know, uh, 
and you could, this is a difficult question sometimes, a, age difference within those. Were you within a couple of years of your siblings or within a year or two of your siblings? You said they had kids pretty quickly. Yeah, it was Irish twin time. Um, they were staunch um, uh-huh. Catholics. Yeah, following my mother was, and she followed it to tea. So yeah, we shot out there pretty quickly. Um, and I did not envy her. My father was a super Peter Pan. Um, he was adventurous. You never knew what kind of fun you were going to get into with him. But wow, was she left holding the bag? Yeah, it's it's uh, the dynamic sometimes when you grow up in an environment like that can be one extreme or the other. And and you know, as we said before we get started, both my parents were alcoholics. Um, I don't believe they did any kind of drugs, but you know, it was. I'm going to give my age away a little bit. <laughs> it was, I grew up, you know, I, I was born in the late 50s. So I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. So I wouldn't doubt that there may have been things in there. I know that my mother was constantly, she may have been on the same stuff. I'll, to, I'll talk to my sister about that. What did you want to be when you grew up? Did you go to university? Oh, gosh, I I couldn't wait to get to New York City. I used to watch Barbara Walters on my beanbag chair in my belly in my basement. And I wanted to get to New York City and be like Barbara Walters. And I went to college begrudgingly just to sort of tick the box off because I thought I had to. I left my family home the morning after I graduated from high school, quarter to eight in the morning. And I didn't go back very often. And I did make it to New York City. When I was 19, I negotiated my way out of college for a term and was living in Greenwich Village on my own, uh, working with a arts management firm, producing a Broadway season. And as soon as I graduated college, I was right back to New York City. I'd been offered a job with that arts management firm, but I wanted something more glitzy, Michael, more in the mainstream entertainment realm and I got a job at ICM um, but I wasn't making enough money so I picked up a side hustle as an exercise trainer and Barbara Walters became a client oh this is kind of uh, that's pretty cool actually to want to be that and then kind of get to get to have her as a client that was probably an amazing an amazing feeling wasn't it it was remarkable. I mean, I remember getting the call from the agency that I that I was a trainer with, and she said, "You know, nobody can handle this but you. So that's why we're calling you. Do you think you can show up tomorrow morning at seven? I'm like, sure. And we actually really connected. Um, one morning, I rang her bell at seven a.m. and she took one look at me, Michael, and she said, "Susan, get in here. What is going on with you?" And she got it out of me within moments. She was a great interviewer for reason and purpose. She too was highly intuitive. And she learned that I was sexually harassed in the workplace Mm -hmm. the day before. And she said, I'm coming to work with you this morning and we're going to confront this gentleman together. And I said, yeah, that's okay, Barbara. I think I got it covered. And I did confront my boss that day and was promptly fired. I had two months of money in the bank. I had barely 90 days of sobriety and I had just extricated myself from an abusive relationship where the gentleman held the purse strings. I'm embarrassed to say now. And Barbara said, you can go work for my fiance Merv. He's running a big film distribution company and he needs an assistant. And I said, Barbara, thank you so much, but 
I just can't be an assistant after what I've experienced. And I opened my own talent brokerage firm, matching celebrities to brands before it was chic. And Donnie Deutsch somehow found me who He's an iconic television host and a bit of an entrepreneur, but back then he was running his dad's ad agency and had Pontiac as a client. And he said, we need Andy Warhol for a TV spot for Pontiac. You think you can get him? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I'll try. So I was desperate to succeed, Michael. I was ready to go to any length and nobody would pick up that fluffing phone at the factory. So I hopped on the subway from the Upper West Side and went down to the Brownstone in Murray Hill, which was the factory, and I knocked on the door. And Fred, Andy's business manager, answered, and I told him I was there. And he said, come back tomorrow, and I'll let you talk to Andy. And so I showed up the next day, and true to his word, Andy's studio doors went flying open after a long wait. It was pitch black. I was terrified to enter that room. I didn't know what was going to happen this time. Um, but there he was in the middle of the room with a pin spotlight coming down on that platinum hair going 17 different directions as he's scribbling and three little pugs, you know, those dogs with the smushed up faces. They were running around the studio and tugging on his pants leg and that's all he cared about. Like he was so connected with those dogs. He didn't care why I was there mumbling away. And finally, for the first time, he looked up and he made eye contact with me and he said, now really, why should I do this? And I said, because you can have the dogs in the shot with you. And he smiled and he said, okay, I'll do it. And that's really what launched my career and me becoming known for matching celebrities to brands and on into television and film as a producer. and. I'm really grateful for it. And it was that empathic ability I had. Either I just had it when I came in or I developed it. I was highly intuitive. I could read a room. Um, I could read the emotional intent. I could read people's emotions, feelings, and even their minds. Like I could get complete sentences when I was young until it became a little too dangerous to do that, but that's what kept me safe. And here I was doing the same thing with Andy Warhol. I could feel his isolation. I could feel his desire to connect and to be seen and for acknowledgement. And I could see those pugs meant the world to him. And so that's what gave me that idea in the moment. And I didn't even know if it was true or not, but yeah, it worked. But it worked. That's brilliant, actually. Yeah, very brilliant. It, it, I mean, it, Andy Warhol, I mean, looking, having Andy Warhol look you in the eyes it, it alone, I guess, must have been like a little intimidating, but at the same time, amazing because what an icon. It, yeah, but you know what? As you know, those people, I mean, and it just went on from there, you know, just I was so graced in having exchanges with many, many celebrities. I mean, I convinced. Taylor Swift doing an interview with cartoon characters, like <laughs> silly, but they oh, put cool. their they put their pants legs on one at a time. Yes, and they, they do. Have this the same issues that we do, only they have to address them in public. And I have great compassion. Yeah, them. yes, they do. One hundred percent. You know, it. it our, my experiences, as we were talking about before this got started, some of my favorite experiences were like when I met, we had Gary Marshall out and um, 
It was great. It was fantastic. My wife was like uh, awestruck because we had been such fans for so long with of Gary Marshall. And I, I got. Can I tell a funny story real quick? Oh, I'd this, love to hear your Gary is, Marshall story. Yeah, it this all. is. Yeah, I mean, it. This is. This was. This was amazing. We get him. We pick him up at the front door, and his assistant. And he's got all kinds of stuff. I got. They've already been. We've already got him checked into his suite. We got everything squared away for him. So we're walking through the lobby of the casino because this was in Vegas. We did the show in Vegas, and uh, the event, excuse me. And as we're walking through there, these people are looking. They're looking. They're like, I kind of know this guy, but they couldn't quite figure it out. So we get in the elevator, and we're going. We're going in the elevator, right? And as we're going up in the elevator, this other guy gets on, and he's riding up with us. And he keeps looking at Gary. He's looking at Gary. You know, he's trying to be trying to be cool. You know, like, I think I know this guy. I think he's somebody. And, you know, Gary keeps looking at him and smiling. And then the, the doors open and the guy gets off and he's kind of looking again and he's shaking his head and he gets off and he starts walking down the hall and Gary holds the door and he leans out and he goes, uh, have a happy day now. And the guy went, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, it was really funny. That's one of my favorite memories because it just showed he was just a, just a fun person because they could have told him in the elevator, but he didn't tell him. He just thought he'd just throw the happy days thing out, you know, out the doors. He was, the doors were closing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was kind of cool. I really enjoyed it. Um, how did you first, how did you first realize that uh, you were, you were drawn towards toxicity in relationships? If I can, if I can just jump right into that. I think that, you know, we as individuals that have grown up in that kind of environment, I think sometimes we're drawn to it and, I think that's the reason I became a police officer, actually. I think, you know, I, it, from my side of it, it was kind of a, when I realized helping to take care of my parents, both of them, and calling in for them when they got drunk, too drunk to go into work, and taking care of my little brother, making sure he got to school, and you know, things like this. Um, I went into law enforcement to see if I could kind of kind of mitigate some of that and to help maybe to help people get out of some of those environments. I took that into a positive aspect of it, but it, it, it also forced me to, to really evaluate my relationship with alcohol as well, because I, I just don't drink and, and I don't have a desire to drink, but it, when I look back on everything, I can see what my brother did. My brother became an alcoholic. So he went the opposite direction. My sister is a give and take. She says she can, she, she has tendencies, but she kind of, she holds them back. So from, from your perspective, may I ask, I know that you, you, have, as you grew in life and you became an adult, uh, did you, did you continue getting into toxic relationships? Yeah, I did. It was, it was natural for me. Um, I didn't know any better. I knew the word alcoholic, but I didn't think it had any relation or impact or wasn't anything that I couldn't handle. And I, like you too, was a great caretaker for both of my parents. I was probably eight when they were fighting brutally outside my bedroom door. My sister and I slept in bunk beds. She had the top, I had the bottom. And I heard my mother pleading for her life. And I jumped up out of bed and I opened the door and my dad was in a drunken stupor with a knife in his hands above his head. And my mom was on her knees and I just screamed, stop it, and literally passed out. 
Um, so these these fights, this drama, this was this was natural. This was a given. The lack of trust, the you know low self esteem, you know the the porous boundaries. It was all natural to me. Yeah, I was pushing in my career and I was successful, but I had a deep insecurity that I was not lovable. And I had a deep codependence. I mean, since second grade and Billy Fritz, I had to have some kind of male attention to be okay and to be approved of. And it was a really strong addiction that took years to ultimately break. Um, and the relationships, um, initially it was easier to pinpoint and then the abuse got more covert. Um, and ultimately it was, it was my marriage when I woke up to realize I was with an alleged narcissist that it was like perfect storm and it, it all made sense. Yeah. It's interesting coming from that environment and working in it with the domestic violence, especially during that four years that I was specific to that in, within itself. Um, it allowed me to recognize a lot of things that I kind of went back in my childhood and, and relived certain aspects of my childhood in thinking about that. And I learned that I kind of had, it did the same thing that you did. I think others out here that are watching and listening, you know, maybe feeling the same thing is that I don't feel loved enough. My self-esteem is enough because they, at least in my particular case, and I think um, especially with a narcissistic, somebody that's a narcissist, their primary objective is themselves. And, and the other ones, other people around them, whoever they happen to be, the other people around them are just stepping stones to get where they want or to feel the way they want or to be the way they want from that perspective. And understanding and seeing that um, takes strength and courage, I think. Uh, when, once you started seeing that evolve from that perspective, um, how do you how do you step out of it? How did you move forward? Are you talking specifically, Michael, with my marriage, or are you talking about in my family system? Let, let's start with your family system, if we can, please, because I, you know, intergener intergenerational trauma. Go, uh, it, uh, and I became familiar with that that term a couple of years ago in regard to another conversation that I had, and I didn't really pay attention to it for you know in the beginning when I first started talking to this person and forgive me i'm trying to remember his name where we're talking but i can't um it was way back in the like the first 50 episodes that i had done but this individual talked about how we we pick up positive things and negative things from our parents who picked up positive and negative things from their parents and and down the line so you could have great 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 grandparents for example that um you can look back through the line and back through the stories and back through the 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 lineage and you can see that well three great grandpas ago I, they were a heavy drinker and but then people were justifying it at that time because of the time frame because well the water's not really clean so the best thing to drink is beer or whiskey because the water isn't clean. But in reality, what it created was an environment of alcoholism that went from great, great, great grandfather to great, great to great to father 
from that perspective. But I hadn't looked at that relationship from that perspective until I started understanding intergenerational trauma, which also goes into abuse. I learned in um, working the job, working on the job, that people who come from an abusive family will most likely continue that abuse down the line, even though they recognize that they came from an abusive family. So if we can help people understand, um, I guess the steps that you took to recognize that you, that you from your family perspective, how you recognize that you, there's something you needed to kind of correct or, or to, to step away from and take a better view from. Yeah, so in my childhood, I, I had the sensation, the intuitive hits on it. Um, my great-grandfather died of cirrhosis of the liver. Both of my grandmothers, maternal and paternal, when I asked if they would marry their spouses again, they said, absolutely not. My maternal grandfather was beaten by his stepmother when he was young, almost to the point of death which brought on psychotic episodes, he foisted the same abuse on my mother. And after those episodes, she was to remain mom. She was molested um, by uh, a community member and was never allowed to admit that and receive treatment for it. My father's father was a Peter Pan. He wanted to be the child in the household. His wife, my paternal grandmother was, this is what you do, you have children. And she tried to compensate. And um, my father was shoved away from music and history that he loved and into sciences. So it was hurt and damaged children, raising hurt and damaged children. And I, I was ashamed when my father would show up drunk at some of the football games where you know I was cheerleading and but I didn't really get it until it in my own life and my goals were falling my focus was falling I needed to know there was going to be a drink if I had to go to a social occasion I was having anxiety attacks I took the wine jug out of the refrigerator and unpopped the cork at work and took a slug to ask for a raise. And I was replicating my father's behavior. I was sneak eating, overeating and replicating my mother's behavior. I was fighting. And so I, to my credit, asked for help and was referred to a therapist, went to his office even though back then you didn't go to somebody and pay them to talk about yeah. your problems. But the first thing I said was my life is out of control and completely unmanageable. And he immediately started talking about, was there alcoholism in my family? How much did I drink? How much did my father drink? And I didn't get it. I was like, I'm happy when I drink. My father drinks right along with me. There's nothing wrong. So he suggested I stay clean while I was in treatment with him, check out some meetings that might help and meetings that might help about what it's like to grow up and a child of, a, of an alcoholic and that I go to other meetings to learn about my father's drinking problem, which was very clever. And I caught on pretty quickly. And 
it was really identifying with what was shared, especially um, with other adults who were raised by alcoholics. I mean, we sat around a conference table and they were sharing the exact things that happened in my home. And I thought nobody else experienced or knew about this. It was stunning. And then when in my own marriage, when I knew it was falling apart, I had to go inward. And the sensations that I was feeling were so historic. It was like bringing the map forward and the fear of being abandoned and neglected was not just from this timeline. It was, it was ancient. The fear was so deep because I was pulling the weight. I had bought our family home. I was paying the bills. I was the breadwinner in most of my adult relationships and certainly in my marriage. And I was terrified to be abandoned. It's, I understand that from that perspective. It's, it, is a, it is a walk that we struggle with on a consistent basis. I, I've had the same feelings that you have had. They, I went to Al-Anon, which is a, like a teen Alcoholics Anonymous, but it, it's not for, it's, it's for, for kids of parents who are alcoholics. And um, the realization of listening to the other individuals, just like you had just done, it um, it kind of hits you because you you kind of you have to question yourself as to why would I keep myself in that situation if I if that's really what was happening? It's happening to these other people as well, and they're here with me. And you know, <laughs> you, I I think that. I think that we feel that within our soul. And that's what I like when you touched upon the fact that you empower the soul is because it cuts really deep within our soul. The, 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 the want, the need, the need for attention, the need for most actors, most comedians are, are depressed or come from a family that's dysfunctional. And they, they want the attention. They want... They want people to like them. They want people to, we all want somebody to like us. We all want to be part of the group. We all want to be that one person that somebody wants to look in their eyes and say, I can't live without you. We all seek that because we're human beings and we're connected in that regard. Well, sometimes we get kicked off that path, unfortunately. Um, with you recognizing what you did and seeking help, I think this individual opened your eyes a little bit in your heart a little bit and maybe your soul a little bit to understand that you deserved better. And and I think it's a message to everyone that's listening or watching is that if you're in this situation, if you're going through this yourself, that you are worth it. Yeah, help is help is definitely necessary. And getting clean was just the basic building block I needed to really start a path of, of opening my heart, expanding my consciousness and becoming fully human, connecting with that little one that I shut down that's within my heart. I feel a piece of my soul is in my heart guiding me and I just shunned that voice and that being and that sweet one for so many years stoically 
moving through and discrediting her. So it's been a journey to come fully aware and awake of that yeah. being of love inside of me that's inside of you that's inside of the guy that i used to ignore or the gal at the end of the ramp in la and ultimately came to understand man they're a human being who's had a really tough ride and i started opening my wallet and giving them whatever came out you know it was like a total shift in consciousness hello they, they are not evil people yep. not well i think it, it allows us to understand again we're all connected we're all human beings we're all connected we're all seeking the same things we all want love we all want happiness we all want to eat we all want a roof over our head we all want to enjoy life we all want the opportunity to succeed we all want to move forward in a positive way we all want to sleep under or on a bed a warm bed and we are all human beings. We all want a hug. We all want love. We all want, you know, to feel. And those of us that have come from a dysfunctional family and, and have done so through adulthood, early adulthood, it took me years, even, even as a cop, it took, you know, thinking I was in control here, you know, from, from a different perspective that, you know, I didn't, I don't, want this to, I don't want this to be displayed wrong. As a police officer, I felt more in control of my life. And whenever I entered somebody's house in a domestic violence situation, I felt that I could add some control to somebody else's life. So when I removed somebody from a home because they were in danger, I removed somebody from a home because I felt that they, they needed an opportunity to break away from the environment that they were in. I was in control of that. I had the opportunity to take that and share that with other people to put them in a more positive environment. We wear masks. We all wear masks. Everybody wears a mask. And coming from a dysfunctional family, I, I felt the embarrassment that you felt when your father shows up to you to the football game when you were cheerleading intoxicated. Mine did it while I was in a play. Mine mine did it with my grand, you know, with my yeah. it. It just, it, it is a feeling that never, never really goes away. But it's something that we can improve upon and make sure that it doesn't happen down the line. So I made sure, for example, my kids, I tried to take some positives. My parents did give me some positives. Um, I'd like to take the positives from that and embark them onto my kids because I felt they were positive. And then I take the negative aspects of what I grew up with and make sure my kids understood what that was and how they had could obtain the tools that they need to make sure they, they succeed in life. And I think we all have the opportunity to do that. And I think you, from where you, you started building back your life, I should say, um, you started developing tools along the way you started developing a methodology along the way that allowed you the the means and the the motive and the opportunity for you to not only improve yourself and to reconnect your soul to this massive universe of individuals and people and from a humanitarian perspective that we're human we're compassionate we are empathetic we we all need something we all need we don't know what somebody like you said we don't know what somebody's gone through that's sitting at the end of that ramp 
we don't know if they're a father, a mother, a son, a daughter, they're an uncle, they're an aunt, they're, they're a grandparent. You don't know what they've went through right before they were, were at the end there asking for something. So in doing so, how did you learn to start taking the first steps into improving your environment, improving your situation? Yeah, well, obviously the first was to get clean um, so I could get into reality because I was in a faux reality and then it was a spiritual walk. Then I started all sorts of modalities and med long-term meditation, um, you know, vision quests and sweat lodges and endurance athletics. I was a marathoner, then I was a triathlete and then a nationally ranked master swimmer. But ultimately, Michael, what I found was I was seeking from the outside in rather than the inside out. And it took a walloping lesson to really get it to the core of my being. I was very successful in New York. Um, and ultimately was invited to LA for a juicy career move, but it was truly to meet the man who would become my greatest guru as in teacher. And that was the man who would become my ex-husband because I think I mentioned that I was still dependent on male approval to feel whole. And I thought uh, this was, my life partner, finally here, you know, said and did all the right things, seemed like he walked right out of a golden age of Hollywood movie. And it's because he actually did. He had no construct um, authentically. He had created it. He had come from an abusive home and had never taken the opportunity to address it and instead had created a false persona, in my opinion. And we partnered for Oh, 15, 16 years on the whole. And I, about year 13, I woke up and I said, wow, I'm feeling so drained. I don't know if I can continue. I had bought our home. I, we had a son. I was doing most of the, most of the household responsibilities and working, bringing in the majority of, of the income and caring for our son. And I literally was going to split out of myself and fall on the pavement. I was so exhausted. And I decided, well, I know our marriage is well past the expiration date, but um, I'm going to bring some fiscal integrity to this thing because I'm not going to let go of it, right? Back to the control. And we went to mediation, uh, much to his credit. He came and we got to the last point of uh, what was uh, post-nuptial agreement. And I thought, wow, our marriage is saved. And that's when he folded his arms and those eyes went into those cold lizard-like slits. And he said, I'm hiring an attorney and I'm filing for divorce. And that intuitive voice that has always followed me came right over my right shoulder and through my heart. And it said, this is the universe doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. And we went back to our home and he took up residence in the master and i by choice took a mattress across the floor into a partial conversion in our garage and i created a monastery in that room and the talk therapies that i had done throughout my recovery period were helpful but it was really somatic modalities like going into the pockets of trauma that i hold in my body and the cells of my being and really exploring them 
and releasing them and replacing them with white or golden light that really helped me shift on a profound level to truly awaken. And it was one calendar year in that circumstance where I held no contact, no verbal contact and no eye contact with a man that I had loved and cherished as I watched his mask fall. And that's what it took to come to an agreement and I could write him a six figure check and he could go on to his next source of supply. And I call him my greatest guru or teacher because that was the billboard I needed to land on my head to wake me up to my own authentic power and my own authentic being from within. So living from the inside out and no longer was I dependent on another to feel safe and to feel whole. I finally found my own value and truth. And I feel like this has been the purpose of this earthly walk to move through some of the toxicity that's been in my lineage, to face the toxicity in others and walk through it, move through it and understand it from a place of love. I mean, there were plenty of times when I wanted to go ballistic to the seeming injustice of this circumstance only to be brought back to the beauty of it. I mean, I was grateful I wasn't in my ex-husband's body having to do this, having to survive this way. I had compassion for his reality and his experience. And I actually had gratitude for all I was learning in this with love. And that's when my viewpoint really shifted to the core and I could see how these challenges, including the home I grew up in and surviving it, including making a way for myself and standing up for myself within the entertainment industry and making a career from it, and then standing up and moving through this horrendous experience of this divorce to actually thrive and to, to understand the messaging, oh, this is, this is why I'm here. I'm here to share this message and try to offer help to others. You know, but that's an amazing journey, and it all started with intuition. I think that uh, sometimes we don't always listen to our intuition. I, I, I can say I, because of my job, I relied on my intuition consistently, so I always try to tell everybody else, that little whisper in your ear, that little feeling you have in your heart and your soul, um, it changed your life. That intuition, that it just changed your life completely. And at least I, from my perception, um, you were able to take that intuition in your heart and, and grow it into something that made you a more confident, empowered individual that was able to move forward in such a positive way that you create an environment not only for yourself to heal and move forward and recognize where you've come from, but to allow others to walk that same path with confidence and empowerment encourage so it it started with uh started with intuition and and meditation i love meditation by the way i i use it every day i i i didn't used to use it but now i have to do it i'm almost addicted to meditation now <laughs> so it creates it it creates it yeah it's good it's just good 
Um, I think that you, how does that, everything the Jews went through, I think is an amazing opportunity for us to understand a healthy mind-body connection. Um, can you help us to understand that, how that connects and how that helps us to, to kind of excel within ourselves and, and to give us the courage that we need? Well, healthy mind-body connection for me was again foisted upon me when another false persona got stripped away. I, I mentioned I was an endurance athlete and I kept having injuries as a marathoner. So I got the genius idea, well, I'll spread it out over three sports and maybe I won't get as many injuries. So I started triathloning and then I was having trouble off the bike and into the run. And so I decided, okay, I'm just going to focus on master swimming. And I tried, tried training like an NC2A athlete and hired Olympians and world-class swimmers to train me and was throwing kettlebells and going into the hot yoga room. And I had to realize I was using exercise like a heroin addict. And ultimately I couldn't walk around my block. So that lesson really helped me tune in and understand I am worthy of saying no, of not having to achieve. There's so many times I, I was up at four in the morning to jump in that pool at 5.30 and it's 38 degrees in Pasadena on the deck and 76 in the pool and I'm freezing for the hour and a half. And you know what? I don't have to do that anymore to be okay and to that's not the most loving thing I can do for my being. And that's been a total shift to really tap into that. I didn't know if I wanted spaghetti or Chinese food for dinner. And I didn't think I mattered to make that decision. And it's been an evolution for me to take a breath and to stop and say, hey, wow, maybe I don't want to call that person and have a conversation right now. Maybe I feel like taking my dog out for a walk and soothe first before I have to express what I need to express in that phone call. This is a new universe. This is a new zip code, giving myself that kind of space and others that kind of compassion. That's an interesting moment of truth within yourself. I think that, you know, some of us, I, I recognize a couple of things in what you had said in regard to some of us have gone through stuff that I, I didn't, I didn't have an issue with alcohol, but I had an issue with work. So my addiction was work, 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 work. And it took me a really long time to understand that that was an addiction. I, I would put in, I'd volunteer for every shift. I'd volunteer for everything I could get my hands on. And it was, as long as I was working, I, I didn't stop to think about stuff. My wife, I'm, I'm proud to say that she's gone, this is her third year sober now. Oh, wow. Yeah, she just, just achieved that recently. Um, she had realized, and she grew up with an alcoholic father, uh, and she recognized that she was, she would overeat, she would stress eat, she would do this. When that didn't work, she would move on to something else. She realized that when to fill a void that she has since worked through, to be, to be honest and open, she has since worked through and recognized within herself that um, 
she kept, it was like a, she would exchange one addiction for another. Mm -hmm. Do you think people, do you think others experience the same thing? Or is that, you know, it's, it's not isolated with, with my wife or with you? Other people feel that. They exchange one addiction for another. How, how do we recognize that we're exchanging one addiction for another? Can we help people understand how to recognize that? For me, it's about taking a breath. I knew. I knew I was overusing exercise. I knew I was codependent. You know, I knew, I knew that I took things to the extreme. It was just a piece of my personality, but it really had to run me over to really stand up to it. So I think we all need to hit our bottom. Mm -hmm. We all need to learn authentic surrender. And if you try to surrender inauthentically, it's just going to backfire on you. And yes, I think that we've been, we've created through our structures, a natural attraction to addiction. I mean, my son's college roommate, double major, double minor, working a job and an intern all at the same time while he's going to school. I mean, it was just insane, just this insane need to be perfect and do more. And I think it's luckily starting to crumble. The cracks are showing it's not working and we need to slow down and give ourselves space and the tools we need, the support we need to address these outdated, broken ways of coping, of being, of creating exchanges that I believe has been programmed. I believe so as well. I think that you know, when you watch when you, movies, TV, whatever it happens to be, and especially in the, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it was to relax, get a drink. To relax, have a smoke. I mean, they create the society created the environment to say, in order to accomplish this, or in order to have a good time, you have to go out and party and stay out till two or three, two in the morning or three in the morning, and then go to breakfast, and you know, and then go home, get two hours worth of sleep, and go back to work. And I can't say that I didn't do that. I I did when I was really young, back when I could. I'm too old to do that now. <laughs> but it's plus I've learned, of course. But I think that that the opportunity for individuals to really kind of understand that we have a choice in life, and no matter what circumstances you come from or what circumstances you're in, that choice is a valuable, a valuable tool to take your first step. You have a choice. You can take. You you have to choose to move forward. You have to choose to recognize. You have to choose to be able to take the step outside of that arena and get some help. And sometimes it's difficult, sometimes it's, sometimes it's hard, but there are there are those out there that will help. Anyone that's listening or watching that are in the situations, there are options for you to get help, to help you step out of that and to help you recognize that and to help you come to the realization that, you, that, that Susan has come to and that I came to. It is, it's a journey no matter what you're going through, whether it be depression, anxiety, uh, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but coming from the, the type of dysfunctional families that we come from, it not only creates a self-esteem issue, but it, it creates a potential addiction issue. It creates depression. It, it creates anxiety. It creates so many, so many 
other it compounds upon each other, I, I think. And sometimes we have to pick away at that one at a time, don't, would you think? Um, yeah, for, maybe not one, of, one at a time. I mean, for me, it was sort of a chiseling away um, at multi-layers. The flap would come up and then another flap would come up and then, because I'm never gonna be that perfect place. It's, mm. But it is, it is absolutely living in a different arena when you become willing to surrender and say, hey, I need help with this or that or whatever it is. And quite frankly, most of us do, or we wouldn't be here yeah. walking this walk. I agree, I agree. Had you always wanted to be an author at one point or how'd you come to write the book? Oh, Michael, heck no. I had an Irish seer in 2007 tell me I had a book to write, and I was like, let me shove that under the carpet. So in 2020, back-to-back -back intuitive said you had a book to write, and the last one said you have three books to write. So I thought, oh, well, before this turns into some kind of library, I guess I'd better get going. And um, my book title was Magical Illumination, Transforming Childhood Trauma into Adult Freedom, because that's what I feel it's been. And I have a beautiful relationship with my family today. I I applaud each of them for the roles they played. Mm -hmm. And um, I wrote the book and didn't really feel connected. I took it on like a, a, a producing assignment. You know, it, when we launched Fox News Channel, we'd come in at seven in the morning and the higher ups would say, okay, here's the topic. We need both sides covered. We need multi ethnicities and we hit at 1.30, go, you know, and you'd have to like right. find it, right? So I did the same thing with the book. You're going to sit here for 15 minutes a day and you're going to write if you got something to say or not, you know? And within nine months, I had the manuscript, but I didn't feel connected to it, Michael. Mm. And I had some tools in the appendix that I just thought, ah, everybody knows these tools. This is just really silly. And so a wise mentor said, you know, go back, go back through that manuscript and write it from little Susie's point of view. The one oh, that's brilliant. walked through this brilliant. with you. And it didn't change so much the black and white of the manuscript, but it changed my connection to it. And my publisher said, hey, those tools in the appendix, they're pretty spectacular. I want you to expand on those. I was like, really? Doesn't everybody know that? No, they don't. Yeah. So, um, and I'm just trying to squash the fact that I'm supposed to have two more on the house according to the universe. Well, you, know how, <laughs> you know how you solve that? You, you don't go back to an Irish seer. <laughs> <laughs> Look for an Italian seer or a French seer. <laughs> I started to do some YouTube videos, posting some YouTube videos. Um, the topic is in, in, inspiration for transformation. And I feel like maybe that's how I'm going to get out of the second book. <laughs> yeah, I, it, you might be right. I think, you know, and we all want to be inspired and we all want to transform. We, we all want to know that we can be something better or more than we are right now. We are enough, but maybe we can be more. So yes, you should keep doing that, I think. And I'm, I'm look, I'm 40.7% 40 Irish, according to my DNA. So I'm almost an Irish seer. Almost. I'm gonna take your. I'm gonna take your word for it. You're an Irish seer just based on all these podcast episodes you've been able to produce and the content you've been able to create. That well, I, thank well. you very much. I appreciate that. I am very grateful for the opportunity that I've had. It, it actually, 
I, I have to be a little self-serving because in actuality, the conversations that I've had over the last four years, 352 of them now, um, has kind of been therapy for me. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, but at the same time though, I, I have to say that I, we've been able to, you know, help other people across the world and, and to bring the inspiration, motivation, and education that my intent was to do in the first place. And, you know, I, I, my objective is similar to yours. I want to make sure everybody knows that we are all human beings, that we're all connected. And that, you know, because somebody may be in a different point in their life doesn't mean that they're not worth it. And if somebody, somebody in our life comes into it, that, that at some point is usually meant to be. And we just have to recognize the opportunity within that or the lesson within that and take that to improve our lives as well as those people around us. That's why I have conversations with people like you. I think that your journey is a testament to being able to overcome where you have come from and then take that and just explode it on the world. So, so then those others that are out there suffering can heal and help the next yes. round. Bring, carry it forward, pay it forward. Yeah. That's what we all need to do. And gratitude. You mentioned something earlier with gratitude. I, I took a quick note in regard to that. It took me a long time to understand gratitude and how much it really is um, important to our healing and important to us understanding, if I, if I may interject with that. It, I think that it took me doing research on my own father and understanding uh, it took me 45 years to get to this point to really kind of understand where and why, for example, he became an alcoholic. I never knew that as a kid because it was back then it was you're drunk he went into the facility they gave him an abuse and um you come out with an abuse if you drink it makes you sick or it can kill you or you know when you when he came out he waited to the end abuse wore off and he went back to drinking i mean that's just the way they did things when i was a kid so he never took a proactive approach into into changing his circumstance he just felt that's that was where he was at but then i when I started doing more research and used my tools that I hadn't used as a police officer to really investigate and understand his background and where he came from. Because his father died when he was 27 years old. His father died in jail at 27 years old. And, you know, I'd always known Grandpa Weinheimer as Grandpa. I, I didn't know about Grandpa Ray, the real Grandpa, because they kept it quiet because he died in jail. Once I understood that, it gave me a better understanding of, oh, now it makes sense. Between everything that took place and some things that took place afterwards, all the things fit. And then I was grateful. You know, not the fact that he died, but I was grateful for going, okay, now I understand what he went through and I appreciate what he went through. And even the tenacity to stay in this life after the things that took place, it gave me it empowered me. It gave me a better understanding. It gave me more empathy for my father's situation and my mother's situation. I found out things about my mother that that back in that day and time just weren't talked about. You had mentioned earlier about you know, molestation and, and, and sexual assault. You know, in certain times, you kept your mouth shut, which, you know, I have two daughters. I have a wife. I have a sister. I, I'm a male feminist. I believe that that 
no means no. And I believe that you have a right to choose. You know, I, I'm very adamant about that. And nobody has a right to do anything to you, anything to you that you don't have permit that they don't have permission for. And in regard to that, I I found out some things about my mother that now now I understand her perspective as well, which gave me empathy and compassion to do to do in my job. It gave me more empathy and compassion when I was dealing with people in certain situations because I went, okay, now I understand a little deeper. So yeah, grateful gratitude. Gratitude carries you forward in a lot of things. We learn to need to learn to be grateful. Um, could you give us some tools that uh, others can start using within themselves? I know that we're going to talk about your book here and how to get a hold of it and everything. And I know that some of the tools are in the book, but could you possibly share some tips or some advice with us in regard to how someone can um, help themselves in situations like this? I'm going to, I'm going to share a really simple one because it's helped me so much and I still use it. A lot of us that come from traumatic backgrounds are carrying that trauma and we live with our central nervous systems on overdrive. We're in a traumatized global world right now with what we're seeing. We're all carrying trauma. So what I suggest is taking a hand, either right or left, doesn't matter. Put it on your solar plexus, which is just below your breastbone and feel the breath go in that place. You'll feel pretty quickly relief just by noticing the breath going in and out with your hand on your solar plexus. And then say either to yourself or out loud, I'm okay. And you repeat, I'm okay until you feel a whole body release. You'll feel the central nervous system calm down and you'll feel a quietude within you. And that's your authentic being. So that's my recommendation, Michael. That's a great recommendation. Um, I would like to help people understand how to find your book uh, as well as your website. And I know that you've got some uh, tools on your website and a way to connect with you if they need some help. Can we talk about that? Only if you feel drawn, because I'm not a salesperson. I hate when when you get the sales pitch at the end. But if you feel drawn, everything is at susangold.us. You can subscribe to my free newsletter that goes monthly. Yes, I don't send you weekly emails. Don't worry. And there's a little um, prelude to my book, which is my first bout of suicidal ideation at six if you want to check out the book, it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and all the likely places. Um, and I have a YouTube channel now at Susan Gold is Magical, but it's all at the website susangold.us. And I have a free one-to-one -one chat. If you're interested, I'd love to hear your story. It's amazing. And I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to make sure everybody has an easy way just to press a button and uh, connect with you. Uh, the book, I haven't read the book completely. I've just started reading the book. It's an amazing opportunity for people to have a better understanding of your journey and how it applies to them if they're walking the same path. So uh, thank you for, for writing that book. I, I have to thank the Irish guy. Um, 
I'll I'll, I'll kind of reach out to my Irish roots somewhere down the line. It'll find him, right? (laughs) Yeah, he's he's definitely a a relative somewhere, Michael. (laughs) We're all all relatives together in the Irish, you know. (laughs) Uh, But I'll I'll reach out to him. Um, But thank you very much. I think that, uh, you know, this is, uh, uh, I, I think hopefully we've been able to inspire, motivate, and educate. I think that uh, your journey is an amazing one that you've come out on top of. Um, I, I, the, the, and nobody, nobody, I need to say this out loud when you just brought that up there, nobody needs to, at six years old, uh, be faced with suicidal ideation. And they shouldn't be doing it at any age, but definitely not six years old. So, you know, anyone that's out there, obviously please reach out to Susan's blog or her contact information if you need to talk or if you need someone to, um, to to discuss this with and uh i'll make sure that i've got some um let me take a breath on this i will make sure that i have some resources in the show notes as well for individuals who are going through this that if you feel that you're in a situation that you need to get out of and you don't know which way to turn then i'll provide you with some resources as well in order to get out of that situation to help you move forward in your life. Susan, thank you very much for being on the show. This is one more thing before you go. I know that you give us a brilliant tool to use, but do you have any words of wisdom before we leave? Well, for me, the answer is yes, until it's no. So also coming from that background, we often cut off opportunities. So I've learned to just say yes and keep saying yes until I know for sure the answer is no. So that's a simple one. But Michael, I really want to thank you so much from my heart, the beauty with which you're producing your conversations, all that you've walked through, your brilliant service to us as an an officer, highly ranking, well-regarded, what you've walked through physically, all you've produced. It's been a beautiful exchange here, and I'm so grateful. You're going to make me cry. Thank you very much. I really am humbled by that. I really appreciate that. I'm grateful. I could talk for another hour, but I know that we we've got we've got to go. Maybe we can have another discussion. Maybe next year we'll retouch base and see how things go. When did you write your second book? Oh, there he goes, egging me on. There you go. See, that's the Irish guy whispering in my ear. <laughs> uh, he snuck right past my earbud. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you for sharing your journey. And uh, I really appreciate uh, everything that you bring to the world. Uh, I'm very grateful for that as well. And you too. Everyone else out there that is with listening and watching, please, thank you very much for uh, being part of the show. Thank you for listening to the conversation. Please don't forget to subscribe. Please don't forget to check us out on YouTube. And uh, one more thing before you all go, have a great day, have a great week, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go. Check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform.